Just a quick disclaimer before I go into the sermon this morning. Um, Some of the language in the chapter we're looking at is PG rated. And so not PG-13, but probably definitely PG. And since there's little friends among us, uh, I'm going to encourage you all to follow your Bibles closely because I may use uh, different words that are less um, harsh than uh, what we see there. So just uh, please pay attention as we go there, all right? So that's just a little warning. Uh, Also, uh, I just want to say these next couple weeks, this week and next week, um, we're really getting into the thick of the book of Revelation in terms of the symbolism, in terms of the things that are there. And so uh, hang in there with me. I appreciate all the patience that you've given. Um, There's a desire among churches, I think, sometimes to simplify Christianity to make it as easy as it possibly can be. And I think we take something away from it when we do that. I think we have to really uh, try to dive in. We have a robust, authentic faith, and we don't want to cheapen it. And so sometimes that requires us to go to the, the harder things. And so that's what we're doing here. So God will be good to us. Uh, and I encourage you to just kind of hang in there as we go through this together. I think most people, though, maybe not... Um, intentionally, uh, when they try to make sense of the world that we live in, they see good things happening. So like at Christmas time, when we see really amazing good things happen, like, you know, a family in need getting uh, blessed with material things that they normally don't get, or uh, when we see uh, people loving one another in an amazing way, it's almost like we say, okay, God won that one. And then when we see evil happening in our world, we don't know where to, where to put that. And so sometimes we think, okay, maybe Satan won that one. And there's like this idea of this cosmic boxing ring somewhere in the spiritual realm where God and Satan are duking it out. And sometimes Satan gets a shot and sometimes God gets a shot and it's neck and neck. And boy, at the end, we hope that God gets that winning shot. I think sometimes we try to put it in that perspective. And that's a normal perspective probably to take as if all we're looking at is the here and now, but I just want to say that's a false perspective. Nothing could be further from the truth. Satan is nowhere near as powerful, as all-knowing, as holy, as awesome, as able to stand against all things as God is. And one of the things we're going to take away from the sermon and passage this morning is that though evil and horrible things can happen in this life, things that tear our heart out, the God is greater than evil. And for this period of time, he's allowing this to happen. But we have to keep our eyes not in the here and now, but on who he is and what the Bible teaches us about who he is. Because he says one day this period will stop. And when it stops, Christ will come again. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to take everything unjust and evil that took place and make it right again. And so we have to hold on to that promise. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn it on or open to the book of Revelation. Uh, We're going to look at Revelation chapter 9. I'll be using the New International Version, the NIV Uh, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, if you're new to your Bible, and just go to number nine and you'll be right with us. We looked at 
uh, in past sermons that God was on the throne in heaven. We saw that vision. Jesus is on the throne with him. And then God had in his hand the scroll. And the scroll was the future of human existence. And it had six seals on it. And Jesus was the only one worthy to take the scroll. And he began breaking the seals, unraveling the the future of human existence. And now we see, and as we pick up here, that that unraveling has taken place. All the future of human existence is laid bare. And now partial judgment is coming to earth. Partial judgment is being released. And so is, uh, we have uh, the six seals were on the scroll. Now that the scroll is open, we have six trumpets. And as each trumpet is blasted, another part of God's judgment is unleashed. We want to be sure to remember these aren't the final judgment that's to come, but these are partial judgments. And Jesus told us when he was on earth that when the judgment comes and the end of the world comes, it's going to come in these little stages. We're going to see partial judgments as they go. And we're kind of in the thick of that here as we look at these trumpets. We covered the first four last time. And now we're going to be looking at the fifth trumpet. What is happening in this passage is that the judgment of God is partially being unleashed on earth. And as that's happening, what God is doing is allowing an army of evil led by Satan to go and bring some of that judgment. And then he is bringing his own army to bring some of that partial judgment. And so we see both here, and the text starts off first describing the army of evil. And so let's take a look. If, look, let's look at Revelation chapter 9 and take a look at the first six verses. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star. That star is Satan. That's who he's describing. I saw a star. Satan had fallen from the sky to the earth, and the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. This is Satan's dominion where he lives. Uh, it's, it's hell. It's where all the activity of evil first originates. He was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant of the tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Here you see right there that Satan's power, the army of evil, is limited. They have restraint. There's certain things they can't touch, including Christians. Those who have the seal of God on their forehead, those who believe in God, they're not allowed to touch them. They were not allowed... But everyone else, it says they were not allowed to take them out, but they were only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Evil is allowed to exist. It's moving forward as God's judgment is coming, at these times, God allows part evil to be a role in his judgment. It's important to note that it was limited. This is not free reign evil. 
It's confined. It can touch only those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And we see this partial judgment being unleashed and coming out. So as the beginnings of judgment come, we see these scorpion-like locusts, is how he describes this army, and they're allowed to torment the wicked only. Who are the wicked? The wicked are those who have rejected God completely, who have said no and live only for themselves. And it says they're not allowed to take them out. This isn't final judgment. But it's interesting, it says, for a period of five months. Isn't that striking? What, again, once again, we see in the book of Revelation these time periods. We see that throughout the book. And what is he getting at with these time periods? The whole passage is about a contrast between the army of evil and the army of God. The effect that we see is the righteous people, the people of God, will endure suffering while on earth. However, the contrast is those who are wicked, who have rejected God, will grab even more severe suffering. If you see this, the suffering on the wicked is five months. Last week, we saw that silence of 30 minutes where the righteous were saying, God, bring an end to evil now. Would you stop this? And it didn't. It went on for 30 minutes. We see a contrast between 30 minutes of the suffering from God's people and five months of suffering from the wicked. So the thing we could take away from this is while the righteous will suffer in this life, it is not even close to the suffering the wicked will experience in the last days right before judgment. And who are these wicked? Those who have rejected God. It's absolutely critical that human beings in this day and age humble themselves, repent, and follow Jesus Christ. I can't say it with as, as much emphasis. It's absolutely critical that we who have heard the gospel, any human being who has heard the gospel, responds to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and gives us this offer of forgiveness and eternal life. If we make him our Lord and King in our heart, that we respond to that by repenting and following him and taking him up on that offer. It's absolutely critical. Look verse 7 to 12. Again, this fifth trumpet is describing this army of evil. Here's the description of this army. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold. Their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions and their tails, they, in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. There you see that again. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek it's Apollyon, that is destroyer. The first woe is past, this first warning of, in, of this trumpet is past. Two other woes are yet to come. These verses are describing this army of evil. 
It's a locust, scorpion-like army. That's the description we get. They have breastplates of iron. There's power in their tails. And right away when we read these verses, we see that, of course, this is symbolic. It's not that there's going to be some creature that appears locust, scorpion-like with all these kinds of things, like a breastplate. No, this is all part of that uh, apocalyptic literature. This is all just symbolism describing what's happening. We see in these symbolism locusts and scorpions and horses and lion's teeth. What this is describing is that there's this army that's going to be marked with power and strength and terror. This is not meant to be taken literal. And what we can take from this is the sufferings for the wicked which are people who've rejected God at this point in the future as earth is unfolding, are driven by an evil army of terror, power, and horror. It's a frightening, frightening picture. God is allowing Satan to move in a frightening way, but he's not allowed to touch Christians. This past week, a very insightful member of our congregation contacted me and asked me this question. I thought it was very insightful. He said, is revelation meant to scare us? Is revelation meant to scare us? It's a great question. I answered yes and no. And more on that in a second. We need to remember this description of this army of evil because in the next trumpet, what we're going to see is the army of God. And the whole point of what John is doing here in this book is trying to paint the comparisons of the two. So this army of evil where Satan is the leader, as we saw in verse 11, the angel of the abyss is there. We have to know about that. We have to realize and look at what they can do and, and recognize and, and see their power. And respect it. Another takeaway for us is that it's good to have a healthy awareness of the dark side, but not an obsessive interest or preoccupation with it. It's a fine line. It's good to have an awareness of the schemes of Satan, but we don't get so wrapped up in it that it consumes us and that we're thinking about it and looking at it. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Another translation is, Be innocent about what is evil and cling to what is good. We must live knowing the power of evil, being aware of it, but knowing that it is limited and God's power is so much greater. When I was serving the Air Force in Desert Storm during that war, we would have daily briefings about our enemy. And in those briefings, we were told what our enemy's tactics were. We were told what their capabilities were. We were told of what they thought their potential strikes were. But it was never glorified. It was never exaggerated. And the ones giving the briefing, our officers, were never preoccupied with the tactics of our enemy. We always left our briefings informed, but never overwhelmed. We left our briefings informed, but never obsessing 
about what our enemy can do. And I think it's a good picture for how we as Christians are supposed to walk today. That we have a healthy awareness of Satan's schemes, but not this unhealthy obsession about it. Now in our passage, it's going to shift and we're going to see the army of God. The sixth trumpet comes out, and I don't know if you remember in the sixth seal, when Jesus broke that sixth seal off that scroll, there were three scenes to it. And of course, now there's three scenes as well to the sixth trumpet. And the first scene is the only scene we're going to cover today is the army of God being released. Look at verses 13 to 14. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This is an interesting picture. You may remember one of the scenes of the sixth seal was that there was four angels holding the corners of the earth, holding back God's judgment, his final judgment from going all over the earth. And the reason they were doing that was so that more and more people would come to faith in Christ that more and more people would know Jesus. So there's this time where these angels were holding back the judgments, keeping it in check, the, the activity of evil at God's command. And it was a thing that encompassed the whole earth. Four corners means the whole entire earth. Here we don't see the whole earth. It's a partial thing. Talks about the Euphrates in the ancient world, there was two significant boundaries, the Euphrates River and the Nile River. The Euphrates in the north, the Nile in the south. And what we get from this is this partial judgment that's going out, again, is not covering the whole earth. It's not a final, all-encompassing judgment that is going to come. This is a partial judgment. Look at verses 15 to 17. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of the mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. This is the army of God that is coming forth. This is describing now the army of God in contrast to the army of evil. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. Out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and sulfur. And a third of mankind was taken out by three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. We see now another army. We see God's army. And it's huge in size. If you take what's said in verse 16 and calculate out twice 10,000 times 10,000, you get 200 million. It's this huge, vast army. John looked and he saw this army of God and he saw he couldn't even count it. Because it says right in verse 16, I heard the number. Someone had to tell him what the number was because it was so big he couldn't even count it. Comparatively to the army of evil, this is a huge army. The army of evil is way outnumbered by the army of God. In contrast, the original audience who heard this letter in the Roman Empire, the, the population, the total population of the Roman Empire at that time was roughly around 20 million people. 
And now he's saying it's an army of 200 million people. More people that they knew of in the known world. Ten times the size of the Roman Empire. God's army is vast. It's huge. So much bigger than the army of evil. And not only is God's army so much bigger than the army of evil, it's so much stronger. Satan's army has breastplates of iron. God's army has breastplates of fire and sulfur. Satan's army has teeth like lions. God's army has heads of horses like lions. John is using this symbolic descriptive language to show how much greater the army of God is over the army of evil. In the book of Revelation, we see that God's army is presented bigger, stronger, and more powerful than Satan's army every single time it's laid out. Our takeaway from that is don't worry, Christian. You will never be overpowered by Satan or evil. Evil will not triumph over good. No matter what you see on your phones or on your TVs or what you hear of, evil will never, ever ultimately triumph over good. God will always have the victory. It won't even be close at the end. We must, as God's people, when we see the evil in the world today, remember what is coming. We must keep the picture that we have in Revelation before us. Look at verses 18 and 19. A third of the mankind was taken out by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came from their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. The devil is powerful in the world, but people should not fear the devil because God's army is greater. And so the right response is that we fear God, meaning we have this awe towards God. That's the right response we get from this book. So does that mean the book of Revelation is supposed to scare us? I'm going to get into that in a second. But before I do, I want to finish something up and show you something. Look at the last two verses we're going to look at, 20 and 21. It says, The rest of mankind who were not taken out by these plagues, catch this, don't miss this, the rest of the mankind who were not taken out by these plagues, so it doesn't take out everybody, still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. What we see here is there's this suffering and judgment that's coming upon the wicked in order to show them what's ahead, to give them a foretaste, and what is the result and the effect, they still did not repent. There was an opportunity to repent, but they still did not do it. After going through the suffering, after going through the horror, they still were defiant before God and rejected him. The suffering should have produced a repentance, a turning, 
a humbling. But it didn't. The wicked did not repent of their sins. Notice that these verses mention two categories of sin. It says that they continue to worship demons and idols. That's a sin against God. And then it says they continue to murder and walk in immorality. It's a sin against others. When Jesus was on earth, he summarized the whole Christian walk and all the Ten Commandments in two things. Love God, love others. And what we see here is this is a a, a pushback to the two very things that Jesus said were the utmost of importance. Love God, love others. And they sinned against that. They sinned against God and neighbor. And what we see here is a group of people who reject God and everything he is about outright. Those who God rolled out this partial judgment on did not repent, but instead they willfully persevered and made their sin a permanent lifestyle. And they said, this is what I'm going to do no matter what, I don't care. And our takeaway from this is that there is every opportunity to repent in these partial judgments that we see, but the wicked do not repent. You never have to worry about God not doing what is right. God will never do anything unjust. He will always do what is just and right. And God in his kindness and his grace in these partial judgments gives them every opportunity to repent and follow him, but they don't. They refuse. And one thing we learn from the book of Revelation, and we see this as people of God, is that people can understand the truth. People can hear the truth. People can even face suffering in the midst of truth to try to open their eyes to the truth and still reject the truth. People can hear the truth. They can understand the truth. They can see the truth in others and the fruit it is. They can have judgment upon them to wake them up to the truth and still reject the truth of God. And as Christians and followers of Jesus, we don't understand that. Because when we live in the blessing of having God's hand in our life, and we live in the blessing of grace and mercy and forgiveness and unconditional love and power and lives that worship God, we don't understand why on earth would you not make that change? Why would you not repent and bow and come to Jesus? We don't understand it but it exists. There's a resistance, a stiff arm. So I want to go back and answer that key question. Is revelation meant to scare us? And as we close, I'm going to wrap it up with that spot. This is a crazy text. There's lots of difficult, frightful, powerful things here. Is revelation meant to scare us. The Bible talks about two kinds of fear. The Bible talks about a sinful fear and a right fear. And we see these two fears throughout the scriptures. They're all over the place. 
And in my opinion, no one looks at this topic better than a guy named Michael Reeves in a tiny, thin little book called What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? And if you go to our website, we have a resource section. You can go to that section. That book is there. I highly, highly recommend that book. No one speaks on the topic, in my opinion today, better than that guy, Michael Reeves. And I'm going to pull a little bit out of what he shares. I want to wrap up by looking at these two fears, the sinful fear and the right fear. And I want to do it by telling you of a story that happened in the Old Testament in Exodus 20. The people of God were on this mountain with their leader Moses. And they're, they're on this mountain and they were wondering if God is real. And then all of a sudden God showed up in a real powerful way. There was lightning and thunder and the mountains were shaking and rocks were falling. And the normal human reaction was to be afraid and the people were afraid. And in that moment, this is what Moses says to them in Exodus 20, 20. He says, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now you look at this, and at one point he says, do not be afraid. And then he says, no, the fear of God should be with you. So it's obvious he's talking about two kinds of fear here. The first one where he says, do not be afraid, is talking about the sinful fear. And then when he says, the fear of God will be with you, it's talking about that right fear that we're supposed to have. Moses is contrasting being afraid of God, which we're not supposed to do, and fearing God. We're not ever supposed to be afraid of God, but we are supposed to fear him, the Bible says. And we're going to talk about what that fear, that right fear means. But in this verse, we see a fear of God that is desirable. It's what we're supposed to do. It's this amazing awe at his power. So we see that, and then we see this fear that we're not supposed to have, this sinful fear. Revelation is not meant to make us afraid of God, but it is meant to produce within us this right fear of God. It's supposed to do both those things. The fear of God is this reverent, healthy awe of him that comes from not only seeing how powerful he is, not only seeing how strong he is, but also seeing how good he is and how right he is. There should be a reaction in our hearts when we see the goodness and the righteousness of God. Like when we think about the fact that if you remember we had that debt thing up here where we owed God sinless perfection and we couldn't pay it and God paid it through the death of his son Jesus on the cross. When we see that goodness, it should produce in us this fear of God, this awe of God because he acted in such an amazing, loving, godly way and saved us from something so awful and horrible. Whoa! We're supposed to have that. There is this sinful fear of God we're not supposed to have that. Jesus talked about this in a story in Luke 19 of different people working for a person that owned a vineyard and one of the workers said, I was afraid of you, referring to the person symbolizing God, because you were a hard man. The servant sees nothing of the master's kindness. He's short-sighted in his false impression. And Jesus in the story rebukes that person. 
They're not supposed to have that fear. You see, there's this blindness and that Satan comes in that he tries to give us. There's this temptation that Satan likes to inflict on God's people that says you should be afraid of your God. He likes to whisper in the ear of those following Jesus, you should be afraid of God. And nothing could be further from the truth. Satan likes to present God as a threat. God is out to get you. There's so many people I talk to at times that feel like when they're going through difficult things is a punishment from God of some sort that he's out to get me. It's a lie from the pit of hell. When we perceive God that way, we run away from him. We don't want to get near him. This is not the fear we're supposed to have and it's not the fear the book of Revelation wants to give God's people. The Holy Spirit gives us the opposite a right fear of God that is good, that wins us over, that draws us close to him, that allows us to live in a way that he's called us to live. We see it all over the Bible. In Jeremiah 32, 40, it says this, I will inspire them to fear me. What he means is I'm gonna kill them with kindness and grace to the point that they fear me and that they'll never turn away from me. This is the heart of God describing that right fear that we're supposed to have. This is what revelation is supposed to do. It's a fear that is good and causes us to constantly pursue this God, to pursue and run after him and rest in him. Jeremiah continues in chapter 33, 9. He says, I will be in awe and tremble, right fear, awe and tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it, talking about the nation of Israel. God is saying, I provide this prosperity, this peace, and their reaction to my goodness will be that they are in awe and tremble, right fear of God. This is not a fear of punishment. It's quite the opposite. God comes and he cleanses his people from their sin and their guilt and their regret and forgives them and gives them a new start and does all these good things for him and the people fear and tremble because of all the good they see. They are in awe at the goodness and kindness of God. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. I love this. He said, it is a fear that leans toward the Lord because of his very goodness. Do you catch that? It's a fear that leans toward the Lord because of his very goodness. It's a sort of fear that has in it the very essence of love and without which there would be no joy even in the presence of God. There is a healthy fear, respect, and awe that comes when we're overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And God, we see, he saves us from Satan's destruction. He pulls us out of an eternal life that we are supposed to live because we did not fill our bargain of living the perfect life that we are supposed to. So the judgment for that was for us to be living in terror and torment. But he saw us in that state, pulled us out, saved us, gave us grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and now we live with him forever in paradise. That should leave us with awe. That should leave us awestruck. It produces a good, special fear. I don't think there's a better way to say it than what that author Michael Reeves said as he put it here. He said, the fear that pleases God 
is not a groveling or shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good, and true God is. That's the fear we're supposed to walk in as God's people. That's the fear we're supposed to grab from we look at the book of Revelation. We don't sinfully fear this God. We're not afraid of God, but we hold a rightful fear of him. I want to wrap up by saying in our Christian culture today, especially in the United States, there is this real strong emphasis of not walking in the sinful fear. We're always telling each other, don't fear. And we're constantly saying, don't be part of the sinful fear. We have songs on the radio about not walking in the sinful fear. We have memes that we send each other about not walking in the sinful fear. We talk about fear not, don't walk in the sinful fear. And that's a good thing because we see that in the Bible. We see perfect love casts out all fear. We see that when people encounter God, the first thing is usually said by an angel is fear not. We see in Psalm 27 when he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid? We're not supposed to fear there. And I think our Christian culture has grabbed that well because we hear that all the time. Don't fear. We're quick to encourage one another who are going through a rough time. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. That's like a knee-jerk reaction we have, and it's good. However, I want to tell you something. In the Bible, the dangers of walking in the sinful fear and the warnings of walking in the sinful fear are much, much less than the dangers of not having the right fear or not walking in the awe fear. Let me say that again. In the Bible, when it's presented as a whole, there is a danger to walking in sinful fear. We're not supposed to do that. But the warnings and the dangers of not walking in the sinful fear are less than the warnings of not having that right fear. And I think as a Christian culture, we've taken the warning of the not sinful fear and hit it out of the park. We're always saying, don't fear, and, we're, and it's like we're smelling fear, and get rid of that fear. I think as the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America today, we need to do that same thing about walking in the right fear. We need to remind people of the awe and the power of God. We need to talk more about this fear of God, the goodness of God, the character of God that motivates us to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. And I think the reason the Bible leans more toward the warnings of not having the right fear than walking in the sinful fear, because if you walk in the right fear of God, you won't walk in the sinful fear of God. The person who is intimate and close with God the Father, enjoying the fear of God and his goodness, the person who's there will never be intimidated by a human being. They'll never be intimidated by anything in this world. When you're intimate with God, you're not intimidated by the things of this world. And that's where the Bible is showing us as his people. That's the message of Revelation. That's what we need to do. This is the fear we're supposed to walk in all our days on earth as Christians. And those who walk in this fear will never be intimidated by anyone or anything because they'll be so close to God. 
That must mean my time is up. Let's pray. 